I'll just set a 90 minute alarm so I don't go over. <laughs> if I move this, is that okay? Very good. Good morning. Give me a second to get a custom up here. I like preaching down there as well, and I may end up down there. Um, but my notes are up here, so this will make it a little bit easier. Uh, my name is Evan, and I just wanted to thank you all and Pastor Bell for inviting me and my family to come up and to preach today. Uh, we live down south about an hour and a half in a little town called Lebanon, about 20 miles east of Corvallis. We're part of Christ Central Presbyterian Church, and so greetings from Christ Central as well. Uh, we are very excited to be here. Um, yeah. My wife Jessica and I have seven children, uh, five of them are there, two are in the nursery, and we have lived all over the world. Uh, we left the U.S. 10 years ago, 11 years ago, uh, for Indonesia for three years, where I taught uh, at an international school there, and then we went from there to Prague for three years, and then we've been back for four years. When we came back, I was took a position at Corbin University as an administrator there. Uh, instead of going to international locations, bringing international students over and training them up in English at the Corbin Language Institute. And now, very unexpectedly, I've gone back to teaching and I'm a middle school science teacher, um, which has been very good. And so we left 10 years ago with one child, we have seven now, and our lives are very, very full and very busy and very good. If you have your Bibles, if you can open up to John chapter 13, that's where we're going to be. I want you to think back to that time in your life when you sensed Christ calling your name. And maybe it was a week ago for some of you, and maybe it was 30, 40 years ago for others. But try to picture that in your mind. What did it feel like? What did it feel like when you heard the gospel for the first time and really listened to it and it burned in your heart and you knew this was truth? You can feel the burning in your chest as you hear this man call out your name from the shoreline. I'm thinking of Peter here. All of your energy is exhausted. The night is barely ended and you've toiled and wrestled with the sea every minute of the darkness, and yet your nets are empty. But something in this man's voice overrules your sensibilities, and you follow his lead. You cast your nets again, and when you pull them up, you are bursting at the very seams with fish. You signal to your partners on shore who hurry with their boat to join you, and you fill that one too. Now both boats are sinking from the weight of an unexpected blessing. You barely make it to shore, and as you hop out of the boat, you size up this man who's been guiding you these past moments. He says, Simon, come follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. The nets in your hand drop with a thud to the ground, and in that moment, your entire world is upended. Something in that man's voice, as he told Peter, cast your nets, something burned inside of him, and something in that man's voice, when he, when he said, Peter, come and follow me, or Simon, come and follow me, 
He dropped his nets and he went. You can imagine what it must have felt like when Jesus came and called the 12 disciples to follow after him, to learn from him, to eat with him, go out from him, to have a share in his ministry. The religious world had passed these men over. They weren't qualified enough to be called by a rabbi in their youth. And so they had followed in the footsteps of their fathers and became fishermen. They became tax collectors. They took jobs. But Jesus saw their worth. Jesus looked beyond the men they were to the men that they would be. And he called them to himself. He said, follow me. Thousands would listen to Jesus preach publicly, but these men were privy to his private conversations. Thousands would eat of the loaves and of the fish that the hands of Jesus had blessed, but it was from these men's hands that the bread was distributed, and the baskets did not empty. Thousands would hear of, a, hear of and witness as Jesus healed the sick, repaired the broken, and cast out demons. But these men were not just witnesses. They were sent ones. They were sent out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and to bring sight to the blind and to cast out demons to raise men from the dead. Simon and Andrew, James and John, seven more, and numbered among them, Judas. Fast forward three years. The disciples have walked with Jesus, learned from him, sweated with him. And now they've come and prepared a table with him. And as the disciples have prepared a table in a borrowed upper room of a home in Jerusalem, we pick up the narrative from, from John's record of events in chapter 13. This is the word of God. Read along with me. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in his, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I have to pause and interject. And then in classic Peter style, and we continue. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter was always excited. You have to love that about Peter. He was always excited. He always had the energy to jump out of the boat, to say, I'll do it. Let's do it. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, 
Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also ought to have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We pray with me. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to bring your word uh, to Shehalem Valley, and I pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would speak through me. Anything that I have prepared that is not of you, would you edit on the fly and keep me from speaking? And if I say something that is not to be said, would you stop their ears from hearing? But the message that is from you, may you open their hearts and open their ears and open their minds that we might learn from your word together and turn and glorify you. Lord God, I pray that you would build us up even as, as a, a church that I, I know nothing of except for the, the few people I've met today. But would you knit our hearts together as Christians who love you and are loved by you and that together we might glorify your name. Amen. So at this Last Supper, Jesus did many things. And if you look in the other Gospels, uh, different writers focus on different parts. And during the Last Supper, Jesus predicted his imminent death. He made clear that a new covenant with God was beginning, and it was in his name, and it was through the shedding of his blood as sacrifice. The covenant was signed and sealed. He established the practice of communion. He promised the disciples that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come upon them and cause them to remember all that he had said and done throughout their time with him. During the time of the Last Supper, he made it clear that there was only one path to salvation, and it was through him. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But at the beginning of of chapter 13, John chooses to focus on a simple but very profound act. John chooses to focus on Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And during this time, Jesus points to two of them. He focuses on two disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot stand as bookends to the list where the 12 apostles are named. And now here, in this final scene before the passion experience begins, before Jesus goes to the garden, he brings these two up again. Both are named, both are negative. Simon Peter, you will deny me. Judas Iscariot, you will betray me. And so we have this contrast of characters. Both men had been with Jesus the majority of his ministry. Both men had witnessed his miracles. Both men had um, 
gone out from him and performed miracles on his behalf, casting out demons in his name. And yet their futures were very, very different. Simon Peter would spend the next decades of his life preaching the gospel, serving Christ, and ultimately denying himself to the point of death, the very definition of the Greek word for witness, martyrio or martyr. Judas, on the other hand, would end his own life without ever experiencing the forgiveness that comes through a trust in Christ and repentance in his name. As we pace through this passage, there are three questions that I want us to hang our thoughts on. Number one, what is true about Jesus in this passage? Number two, what is true about the disciples and, by extension, us as believers? And then number three, where do we go from here? It says that it was the, the, the last hour, that it was that Jesus' hour had come. If you look throughout the book of John, Jesus repeatedly used this phrase, my hour. But it was always, my hour is not here yet. When his brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem and declare himself the Messiah, he says, you go, have a good time, but my hour has not come. When his mother says, come, fix this problem, we're, we're, we're out of wine. Woman, what would you have me do? My hour has not come. Jesus was very in tune with God's plan for his ministry and his life. And yet now the hour had come. And that hour specifically was for him to depart the world. For him to go through the experience of the passion, of the crucifixion, of being betrayed by Judas, of being put on display, of being mocked and being crucified. And what does it say? Look in in verse 1. It says... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Go down to verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So what is true about Jesus? He knew where he came from. He had come from God. He knew what he had. All things had been given to him. Satan had tempted him and tried to give him the things that were already his and would be his. And he knew where he was going. What enabled Jesus to strip off, of his, out of, or strip off his outer garments, take a towel, wrap it around his waist, and to take the role of, a, of the lowest servant and wash his disciples' feet? What enabled him to do that are those very things. He knew who he was. He knew he was going back to the Father. He knew that taking the role of a servant did not diminish who he was. What is true about us as believers? What is true about the disciples? Where do we come from? Well, The Bible tells me that I I was chosen before the foundation of the earth. What does it tell me about what I have? The Word of God tells me that all things have been given to me for life and for godliness. What does it tell me about my future? What does it tell you about your future? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may also be. 
The very things that Jesus knew about himself, we are able to know about ourselves. My identity is in Christ. Therefore, I can do as Christ did. Christ's question to the disciples was this. Do you understand what I have done to you? He was leading from the proposition that even though they had just had their Lord and Master stripped down, wrapped the towel around his waist, and washed the mud and dirt from their feet, taking the position of a lowest servant, they did not and would not readily understand it, so he explained it to them. He said, For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When I look at Peter and his response, he wants more of Jesus. He doesn't understand, just like the rest of the disciples. He doesn't really get it yet, and he will. He will get it after Christ raises from the dead. But the contrast between him and Judas is very strong. When Peter denied Christ in the coming chapters, what was his response? But sorrow and repentance. And through that repentance, forgiveness. What is Judas' response? Sorrow, but not repentance. And not forgiveness, not receiving the forgiveness of Christ. In fact, being so overcome by sorrow that he took his own life. What is required of a disciple is a radical, self-sacrificial service. When we look at Luke 22 and we see the, um, how Luke presents this same story, we see that the disciples are arguing once again over who is the greatest in the kingdom. I'm the greatest, you're the greatest, who is the greatest? And so it's easy to assume that Jesus in in, in taking the role of a servant, washing their feet, he's responding even to that attitude. But why did he wait three years? Why why wasn't this the first thing? Come, follow me, jump out of the boat, let's go. Hold on a second, I'm going to wash your feet. And just as I'm doing it, you need to do this too, okay? And when we call the other people, we'll wash their feet too. Why did he wait? There's no answer in Scripture, so there's only conjecture. But one thought is that he wanted to leave a lasting message. He wanted the last thing, the last time that all of them were together, right before the crucifixion, the very last thing, for it to, instead of being a lecture, instead of a sermon, he wanted to give them a physical act. This is what it means to be my disciple. This is what it means to follow after me. It means that you make yourself the lowest of low. When we, look, when we look at Judas, Judas was in love with the world. He was a thief. He was a betrayer. When we look at Peter, he was proud. They were both sinners. They were both men that had sinned, but they, both didn't, or they did not both respond to God's offer of forgiveness in the same way. What is it that is required of us? I don't know your name. Steve. I loved your prayer. In his prayer, he mentioned the political divide that we have in our country. And it's in our world 
having lived in nine different countries, I tell you that the polarization isn't just an American phenomena. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, I hate you, you hate me. And that's how we live today. And that's how we've always lived. 501 years ago, there was polarization in Germany and in Europe at the time of the Reformation. Because of sin, because of our love of ourselves, because of our love of what we think is important, we can do nothing but be divided, to be separated. And we form our camps. And we form our, our, our tribal unity. Here's the message for today. And I want you to take this home and I want you to, to meditate on it, wrestle with its implication, and ask the Holy Spirit to give you insight and wisdom. What is Christ's love dependent on? Is it dependent on you? Because before you knew anything about him, he loved you. Before you loved him, he loved you. And when you deny him, just as Peter did, when you choose to sin and delight in the pleasures of this world, whether it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, whether it's in our self-righteous attitude towards those that are other, that are not like us, that don't agree with us politically, that don't agree with us socially, that maybe look different or smell different, if you've ever worked with the homeless. Why does Christ love you? And then what are you going to do about it? When we look to Christianity and we take on the practices and we claim the beliefs and we immerse ourselves in a religious community, but we do not live out the reality of repentance, we create a cultural Christianity. We have that in our world today, in our society today. And I love what we did today. We took time, an extended period of time. I loved it. It wasn't just a quick, here is a, a quick confession of faith, let's move on. It was, it was time. And you can feel it. It's like, okay, are we going to move on? No? Let's confess some more. I loved it. Because it is what we need. Because without a constant and regular recognition of our brokenness and need for a Savior, of our inability to pull ourselves up by means of our own labors and good works, and without crying out forgiveness for the blood of Christ to cover us, for the Father to not see our sin but his Son, we marry ourselves to the world. Christ is calling us to a radical self-sacrificial self service. He said, just as I have done, you go and do likewise. Does that mean wash the feet of, of other believers? Yes. And more. Um, when I was at college, uh, I got my undergrad at Corbin University. I would go out on Friday nights and work with the homeless. And I remember being in an emergency room once uh, with a friend who was having his appendix removed. And a homeless man was brought in. And I didn't know this one, but I knew a lot of them. And I watched as they cut off the socks from this man. And I asked one of the nurses, why are they cutting him off? And she said that, that it was common that the homeless, when they would urinate, it would get all over their socks and they would fuse to their feet. 
It's October, which is Socktober at our school right now. It's to help prevent that. Sometimes that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Sometimes if what is required is to wash the feet of others, then that is what we do. Sometimes it's to hold the hand of a dying man who doesn't know the Lord. And it's with whatever words you can muster, sharing the grace of God that you have in your life with that man before he passes. Sometimes it's to, to hold the soft cheek of a boy who has lost his father. He's not dead, he's in prison. And to offer whatever comfort we can. I was encouraged when Steve uh, prayed for all the organizations in this town that this church is working with. I almost thought, well, I should just stop. I don't even need to preach. They are doing it. Jesus knew where he was from, and he, he knew that he was going back to the Father, and that enabled him to take on the position of a servant. You know who you are. If you are a follower of Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. You were bought with the blood of Christ. You are a new creation, and you have been given all that you need for life. What are you going to do with it? What are you doing with it? You are equipped and will be equipped to do what is required of you when your heart is turned toward obedience. You are a vessel ready to be used by the master. There's a passage in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, I love it so much. I'm going to show it to you guys. I have it written in colored ink so that I, so that I remember it and I, and I read it nonstop. I set it by the bed and I read it to remind myself. And I just want to read it to you. It says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, along with those who call upon the Lord. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When I first became a Christian 20 years ago, I thought that the way that you spread Christianity is you need to confront everybody. Where are you going when you die? And if necessary, hit them in the head with your Bible. Just chuck it at them, if, if that works. It's never worked. <laughs> but if you angled it right, and then as they're recovering, you pray over them. <laughs> it didn't work. I realized that my salvation, my uh, experience with God was his everlasting patience as I mess things up over and over and over. As I try to do right, and sometimes I did, but most of the times I didn't. 
when I thought I was doing the, a good thing and it turned out badly, and sometimes when I knew I was doing a bad thing and I kept doing it anyways. And he was patient. The fact that he didn't kill me any moment of that time, the fact that I'm alive today, the fact that you're alive today is evidence of God's eternal and infinite patience. And it's his kindness. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It was the kindness of a 15-year-old boy named Isaac who turns out his dad was a pastor who asked me, what do you think about God? And I told him my very naive 15-year-old opinion. And he didn't get angry with me when I made fun of Christianity and the Bible and used inappropriate language. Instead, he invited me to Bible study. And I went, and there was a girl there that I thought was pretty, so I kept going. God desires us to show kindness to those around us. God desires us to make ourselves servants of others. Radically. Taking, taking off our outer garments and, and tying a, a towel around our waist, if, that's what, if that is what is required. But as I look out, I, I imagine the majority of you uh, are Christians, that you know the Lord, that you come from a Christian family or a Christian upbringing. George Fox is just down the, the road. Corbin, we like George Fox. Somewhat. But I don't presume that every single one of you knows the Lord. I don't presume to believe that just because you call yourself a Christian that you are. Because we know that, that when we all stand before God that on that last day, some will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. And so... Here's my encouragement and here's my challenge. When you see the evil deeds of others, when you turn on the news yesterday morning and you saw that a gunman had opened up on a synagogue, when we hear uh, about the evil in our town, what is your response? When they're caught and brought to justice, does it make you feel good? When you see the evil of others, when you see Judas, and that in the end he died, he, he, he hung himself, does it make you feel, yeah, it's what you deserve? Or does it make you look into your own heart and say, Lord, where am I failing? Where is my sin? Where am I in need of repentance? Does it cause us to thank the Lord for his infinite patience? I want to end with a, a quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle was a, a bishop in Liverpool in the uh, 1800s. I've mixed up my papers. Hold on. It's our job to recognize our need, our own need for repentance. To see the devastations that are wrought by sinful man and instead of shaking our head at, our, at their misdeeds, to look at our own hearts and beat our chests and cry, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. It's our job to forgive, uh, to receive the forgiveness of Christ that is offered through the death, through his death on the cross. To go the way of Peter and not of Judas. 
It's to pick up the sponge or the broom or the hand of the widow or bread for the homeless. To give them hope, to give them the hope that is within us because of repentance, because of forgiveness, because of his love. It's our job, and here's the quote, to realize that he should bear with all of our countless infirmities from conversion until death, that he should never be tired of our endless inconsistencies and petty provocations, that he should go on forgiving and forgetting incessantly and never being provoked to cast us off and give us up, that his long-suffering is infinite. As you go from this place, go home tonight. Read over chapter 13. Ask yourself, where in my life can I wash the feet of another man? How is it that you would have me respond, Lord? How is it that you would have me follow you in this way? How can I bring glory to your name? Because we'll all live it out differently. Let's pray. Lord God, I do pray that service would be the calling card of Christians in this church and in this community. That as those that do not know you look into this church and into my life, if they knew nothing else, that they would know that they are kind, that they are servants, that they are willing to pick up a rake, that they are willing to pick up the tab, that they are willing to buy socks and to meet the homeless where they're at, to feed those that need to be fed, to share time with those that need our time, like those in nursing homes. Lord God, I pray for this church that your name would be lifted up and that the people around this church, that the people in this community would see the light here because of the people and because of the service that they do for your name. Lord God, I pray for anyone who takes on your name but has never actually known your forgiveness. Judas, for three years, did miracles in your name and yet he did not know you. And yet Peter, though he sinned as well, he sought for your forgiveness. And so I pray for those. I pray for those that have have never truly called on your name. Would you bring them in? Would you bring them to repentance? Would you show your forgiveness to them that they may have new life, that they may be made a new creation, that they might be of a benefit to your name? Lord God, we pray for Pastor Bell as he uh, is out of town and as he comes back. I pray that you would give him the, the wisdom and the guidance to lead this church well. Amen.